Hey guys, this is Tobias from Astralis. Ask Thorin, episode 12, questions submitted on Boomio by you, the public, or people like you, or people from the same species on planet Earth. So the first question is by Kingen, and it says, Over the history of esports, what do you think are the top three most competitive games at their peaks, if we imagine the player base was the same for all? So the problem with this question is it's way too vague. Like, I don't understand what he means by these terms. Like, when he says the most competitive games at their peaks, does he mean competitive as in the top teams were incredibly close, the top players were very, very close, and so there were a lot of epic matches as a result? Does he mean competitive, because he says with the player base being the same, as in the scene was incredibly competitive? Because, yeah, it's tough to know what, what the definitions of these terms are. And these are very, you need to be specific on what you mean by terms, because the more specific you are, the more the, the answer can be to your question. So I'll just go ahead and say, in terms of the most competitive games, I think in general, for me, they're probably the hardest games, actually, because the hardest games, in a weird way, because they allow so much individual player skill to be exhibited, actually if you ever become truly a master of them, allow you to dominate more because there are so many ways to show off your skill and exert dominance over the opponent that you don't always have to just have some element of aim going for you and work in that sense. So for example, famously, I'm going to go ahead and going to start with Quake Live because this was a game that had a pretty small player base and especially player base of pros. It wasn't that big. It was the same sort of 12 to 16 people making it to all the lands and then the top four of the tournaments would basically be the same six people for like three or four years but it was incredibly high level the players that won tournaments were very very good there were some exceptionally talented players that always finished top four always made finals always made deep runs and part of that is the fact that the game was so difficult as a game and had so many factors to controlling it and had a good tournament format for example that's a tournament that always had best of fives in the playoff series, so you weren't going to just have some fluke upset of someone going two to one like you can in Counter Strike, although it's a different scoring system, obviously. And crucially, famously, Quake was the original game because it requires so much aim that people used to think who didn't play Quake, right? Oh, it's just about aim. Well, actually, some of the great champions of all time in Quake were not the god tier aimers. Meanwhile, you had some people who were much better aimers who never got to their level. So, for example, Rafa was one of the, the most decorated Quake Live players. He won many, many tournaments, many world championships, and yet he probably wouldn't even be a top six player in the world in terms of aim. In fact, I think that's even generous right there. If we're talking about just aimers, forget like dual ability, I think he'd be way worse than that. So you looked at someone like Sparty or Kilson. These guys were lower down. It's very rare they'd ever make it deep in tournaments, especially later in the game. But they had much better aim than Rafa. But he had all the other elements. He knew how to get the most out of his aim. He knew how to create matchups. He knew how to read tendencies of the opponent. He knew how to create new tactics. He knew what decision-making to make in, this, in the, each situation. So Quake's got to go ahead and start right there. It's one of the best games of all time. And, and the back and forth between Kula and Rafa and Cypher and then for a time Avec was absolutely incredible to view and then there were those players at the next level who could still give you upsets like a strengths sparty kilson so yeah it was it's an incredible game to watch i'll also go ahead and say starcraft brood war and particularly we're talking about korean starcraft brood war no one really gives a fuck about foreigners i, I particularly didn't 
But in Korea, not only again was it a game that's incredibly difficult, like a key thing about StarCraft Brutal that makes it nothing like StarCraft 2 is the reason why, except for when you pull off a calculated cheese, the games don't end immediately. It's because of the fact that there's so much you can do within the game. So when you have a big battle, you lose some troops, you pull back, then you have to decide which expansion to protect. And then when you have the big battles, there's so many elements you can micro that you can't in a way in StarCraft 2. So as a result, it was a lot less uh, streaky, a lot less inconsistent when you compare it to something like StarCraft 2 or any other or RTS game I'm aware of. So as a result, again, it was incredibly skilled, required a very deep understanding of the metagame, and particularly you had to have mastered your own style of play to know how to get the best out of it. So you look at those players, Bisu, Flash, Jadong, Stork, Fantasy, there were just some, especially this last period, I'd say like 2007 to 2011 was unbelievable. Might be the best, my favorite period in any game of esports. It was so high level. The matches and, and the, the championships all made sense to a degree. They were the odd fluke one. But in general, the best players, they work the clear best players. It reminds me of the big four in tennis. And the, what they accomplished collectively was insane, but even individually. And it was because of the existence of each other that they also accomplished that. If you hadn't have had a Jadong, someone like Flash would have come up a lot easier, won a lot of tournaments without as much difficulty, and he wouldn't have been forced to develop and kind of go to the next level, which for me is what he did after he lost that Nate MSL in January of 2010. So, Brood War, Quake Live, most competitive games, let's see. See, I feel like we should do CS 1.6 there. Like, as a game itself, I didn't think it was as good because they degraded it a lot from version 1.3, but the scene around it particularly was very, very special, and it was for so long. That's the key thing as well. It really did run over a decade. And certain years, you go and you look at, like, for example, like 2006, 2008, 2010. I mean, I did talk about, you know, the most competitive years in a video I did on my channel. These were amazing years where we went all over the world. We had so many elite teams competing. And the fact that you had in each of these years a dominant team just shows how incredible the scene in the game was back then. So... Graz says, thoughts on the Dignitas lineup. Are they a contender for a top team spot or are they just a team that will sometimes get upset in best of one slash best of three? Now, I actually don't think the Dignitas lineup will do anything of note. Remember, I only really care about tier one tournaments. Like, it's actually far from certain they'll even play in EPLs, in the bigger, like the DreamHack Masters type tournaments, because I think they'll have a hard time qualifying and I actually don't know if they'll get invitations because now we've got so many good teams that will people really give an invitation to Dignitas? Do they even have that bigger fan base anymore outside of like Fox, for example? I don't really know what they do. It's not like Kingman where they had McLeary and Scream and, you know, these huge names that were worth giving the invite to. So I do kind of feel as though they're going to struggle to even make it to these tournaments. Now, if they did make it to those tournaments, they're not appalling. Certainly they've got some decent players in the team. I just don't know what kind of ceiling they really have. Like, a lot of it, to me, still rides on Rubino. Rubino has to get even better as an in-game leader. He's already okay for someone who's just begun and hadn't really done it in the past. But he's got to really improve rapidly. And then I feel like they're at least one move away from being a, a good team, one that can actually mix it up with the top 10. Like, I feel like... I know Chroma was a new addition recently. Jacob's been very up and down. Tenski for me, wasn't that impressive once he played the slightly better teams. I feel like one of these players has to go. And they need to get a better player in the, through the door if they can. Who knows? Maybe someone who gets kicked out of a North or Heroic or something. You can pick someone like that up. I think that would be the approach to take. So I don't think they're going to do a lot, quite frankly. I definitely don't think they can be a top team. 
Now, Tex says, what are your thoughts on the Godsent lineup? Will they have to make roster changes to become a top 15 team? And if so, who should be changed? Right, I think Godsent is appalling, actually. Like, I think this is a perfect example of a team that only has any relevance because of the names in the team. As in, people look and they see, oh, Pronax, three-time major champion. But Pronax right now is in the worst slump of his career individually, and his style, for whatever reason, with his team isn't effective. I'd suggest he hasn't got enough star players. But it just isn't working whatsoever. Then you look, okay, Schneider. To be fair, Schneider was already a player who wasn't really doing much from 2015, 2016. So, I mean, yes, obviously this team, when they had Twist in it, and Lecro had that little spike when they had the Malmo run where they could have made the final, sure. But beyond that, they haven't really done a whole lot, have they? So the, my problem is they're a, kind of a mediocre team. I don't really see any quality star pieces in there. Like, I think Lecro maybe has some potential, but I think he needs to go to a better team to develop it. I don't really know where someone like Pronox can even get a star player who could do something in this lineup. Like, if I'm Godset at this point in time, I have to go ahead and say this. I would just stop looking in Sweden, you know. Like, in Sweden, a lot of the talent, the Epsilon guys, has been farmed over already. Unless you can get, like, a Modi out of Heroic, which, you know, Heroic, Godsent, hmm, are they owned by one company? You know, that's obviously a move you could consider. Remember, Modi's Swedish. I think he's certainly a good player. But beyond that, I think you've got to consider doing a move that takes in someone from Norway, Denmark. These are the sorts of moves you have to make. I mean, hell, look at Sonny over there in, in Penta, who comes from Finland. If you'd have known how he was going to play in Penta, just get that dude and put it in your team here. They can all speak English in, in Godset. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sure sure about the younger ones like Lecro, but I guarantee you I know that Pronax and Schneider and those guys can speak absolutely fine English. So grab one of those guys who's much better than most of the players you're going to get, put him in your team, make him a guy in a star role, have him play like the Olaf role of what Pronax was used to from Fnatic, and then build the rest of the team around it. Because at the moment, this whole friends approach and just chilling with these other players, it fucking sucks. Like, this is not a good lineup, and I want to see them be good and be relevant, if possible. So, Fritz Chen says, after seeing a few maps by the new NIP, which changes have they made to their system? Which additional changes would you, would you make to make them a top five team again? So at the moment, it's actually hard to tell because I always feel like when you first make a lineup, yeah, you have the premise, you have the concept in mind of like, here's what the team would look like and the roles would look like. But usually it's the first like one to two lands where that gets ironed out because they'll try something at the first land that doesn't work and then someone won't be quite fitting in their position and maybe one of the old star players isn't getting it going as well. So, okay, first and foremost, Forrest was killing it. So that's a very, very positive sign. And I feel like bringing in Rez has helped in that respect. I feel like they've they've got more skill and they've got a younger player and they've got someone who's hungry and it's not, they're not going to kind of play a, a passive game in any way. So I feel like that makes sense. It's opened up Forrest. Get Right had some pretty big games, but for me, his slump was largely on him himself, you know? I mean, he wasn't really affected by in-game leading and shot calling and Freiburg's problems because he, he plays kind of on the different end of the ball, as it were, or different end of the, the round, as it were. So I don't think you can really account for much there, but Rez has looked a lot better than Freiburg has. So that's a key element to me is that they, they still have the loose style, but they've got more skill into the lineup. Now, I do want to see them putting more effort into getting a hybrid between the loose style and what they had with Threat last year, because that anti-eco style they pioneered around Malmo last year was incredible. I thought it was really, really good. I, I think it actually has a lot of value to this day. Like, I think it has to be tweaked now, because at the time, that's when people would just get all the Tech Nines and all the rest of it. I feel like now, people are going to try, like, the UMP buys on, on what should be forces, 
or they're going to go with just a deagle. So I feel like you need to change up how you do it, but I think there's a lot of value still to that style because I still see way too many teams get exploited on what should be easier rounds for them where they have the rifles. Uh, what additional changes would you make to make them a top five team again? Hmm. That's a tough question, actually, because obviously they've stayed all Swedish and they haven't been willing to go elsewhere for players. See, I've always felt like what they needed in this team was someone who's like a, a strong, consistent rifle player. So, I feel, okay, here's what I'll go ahead with. I don't know how it would happen, what the circumstances would be, but if I could make a change, I would take... In fact, by the way, I would do the same change to Fnatic or to Nip. I would take Rain and I would put him on their teams. And I'd say, right, he's just going to be a second or third player. He's just going to be someone who does what Rain does. He's going to be pretty consistent as an overall player. We know he's a skilled player. He's very experienced over the last couple of years. I'd take a player like that and I'd throw it in the mix. I feel like he could really bring a different element to their game that they don't have right now in, in either of those teams. Right, Warrior Margan One says many people think pistol rounds are a bit random and have too much of an impact on the game. What are your thoughts on a system where T's start with fourteen hundred and CTs start at thirty-two fifty? See, this is a good example again of like this isn't really asking questions. Like you've asked me a question there, but you haven't given me any reasons as to why. Like why am I being asked if T's would start with fourteen hundred and CTs start with thirty-two fifty? Since he hasn't explained, I can't really answer that for you. So instead, what I'll go ahead and say, I mean, presumably he means because after the first round, he wants it to be reasonable as to whether you have rifles or you don't. So what I would say instead is this. Do, like, pistol rounds are a bit random, have too much of an impact on the game. Yes. In fact, I think part of that's the flaw of the pistols, which is that they encourage being spammed and that they are... If, if people upgrade from the basic pistols, are pretty powerful. I think too powerful in some senses and people move too quickly. So for me, yeah, there's a lot of random elements to it. And that's why I think there's not that many teams that are super consistent at pistol rounds, even when we're talking about the best teams in the world. So I think that is a problem, quite frankly. I don't think it's as much of an issue because they don't you don't automatically get the two rounds afterwards like you used to many, many years ago, we're talking about like a decade ago or more in Counter-Strike. Um, now, in terms of the fact of the idea... It's not really the premise he set forwards, but the basic gist of it is, you know, what about getting rid of pistol rounds? Actually, I would like to see that implemented. I would like to see that tried. I'm not that big a fan of pistols. Like, have them remain, yes, for when you have all of these situations where you don't have money. Sure. Have them remain, obviously, as secondary weapons. But I would actually prefer it if each game started with... How, how about this? Start with a buy on the first round. So let's say each team... I mean, let's say CTs start the first round with 6K and the terrorists start the first round with 4.5, something like that. Tweak the numbers so it's basically one buy. And then, yeah, you're going to be poor the next round and then you're going to have people are going to have to consider saving, etc. But the difference is you're going to start the game with strategy. You're going to start the game running full gun rounds. To me, full gun rounds are Counter-Strike. Like, yeah, the other element exists because of the money economic disparity, but I don't like the whole pistol round aspect. I think it just it just makes one part of the game, let's say a fifth of the game, if you look really at how important it is. Let's say it makes a fifth of the game kind of lame. And there are certain maps where you get that bad CT start, like Train's not a bad example, and I just think it makes the map not as good, quite frankly. So yeah, I would just get rid of pistol rounds entirely, personally. I don't, I don't see the appeal of them. Yeah, they're exciting, and people maybe hitting like three USB headshots in a row might seem cool to people, but I don't think it makes for great Counter-Strike, quite frankly. Uh, Katungen says, 
I have the audacity to ask two questions. Oh no, someone stop him. I mean, I could have just read one of the questions, remember? One NBA related and one CSGO related. Do you think it's probable for the 76ers to get to the NBA final within two to three years? If so, if so, slash not why? No, I don't think that's reasonable. Like, I actually think they have some decent players right now, but you always have to ask yourself this if you want a team to go very deep in the NBA playoffs. Who's the superstar player of the team? Because that's the problem. The 76ers have some good players. They have some players that potentially could even be all-stars. Like, that's actually one of the things that's pretty, pretty cool about the 76ers right now. And they've done some decent jobs in terms of the GM and some of the drafts they've done. I think they have got a decent squad right now. Obviously, they're coming from a terrible place. Their big problem is they don't have a player who's vaguely top 10 for me. And that's the issue. You need a top five player if you realistically want to guarantee that team's getting to the playoffs at uh, the final of the playoffs, rather. That's one of the things I love about the NBA, actually. You just don't make it with lesser teams. Like, the last lesser team to really make it was basically the Spurs. And I'm talking about, like, years ago, by the way, when they made it against the Heat. And, yeah, sure, Kawhi Leonard now's a beast, and he had an amazing finals in, I think it was 2014. But, no, if you look, ultimately, at the level that even that team there had one of the best coaches of all time. They had an incredibly deep team. They had a bunch of old superstars who were really old, and they had a young guy. So they were probably like a, an example of the a team without it, but they had every other factor to offset that. So you look at the 76ers, it's just not going to happen for them. They don't have any factors that would, would suggest they could go that far. There certainly can be a playoff team, yes. Now, maybe they could win a series. Yeah, this is all fine. And they have got development space in the next couple of years for some of the young players. I think that could absolutely happen. But no, there, there's no play. I mean, listen, if they were to get like a Dwayne Wade or something like that, because they have to be someone at least with veteran smarts, because it's hard to see what star player they're going to get right now. I, I don't think it's going to happen personally. And what was the other one? What... Wait, wait a second. What motivates you to become the best at what you do? From where do you get your energy, drive, lust? Right, well, that's obviously a very complicated question because that's really a question about life itself, isn't it? Where, do, where does energy come from? Where does our drive come from? Where does our lust for life come from? Now, you can add in factors that attenuate that, kind of emphasize it. Like, for example, if you're doing something you enjoy, and one of the secrets of my career has been developing a very specific focus type of curiosity. So it, I have this kind of curiosity for other aspects of life, but obviously that doesn't directly feed over into esports, although it does actually to some degree, because when I get interested in some very like arcane hermetic topic, for example, because it's about thinking and modeling the universe, I'll come up with elements from that that will make me ask questions about esports that I can maybe turn into content. So sometimes I do get content from other interests, but in general in Counter-Strike, you've got to maintain a curiosity that keeps you watching something, studying something, looking for patterns, thinking about something, re reflecting on and readdressing old models that you have. And in doing so, you will keep watching games and thinking about them. all this extra work, which isn't directed to a specific co like output. Like I'm not trying to make this one piece and then reverse engineer what I had to do. I'm trying to keep this interest and keep doing it a lot. And therefore, from those ideas, I can then create lots of content. And that's one of the things that I do in general. Now, in terms of the, what motivates you to be the best at what you do, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I would just say to be the best that I can be at doing it. So I keep trying to improve what I can do in particular areas and hopefully elevate elements in my thinking or iron out some of the some of the areas where I haven't fully decided on a principle. Like one of the reasons I started doing this series Principles of Counter-Strike is because I have these broad 
principles on Counter-Strike that other people might just take for granted or haven't really explored, and no one really has. No one's really met, put down the work there where other people can build on it or have their own perspective on it. And so there's certain things I've outlined there I'm going to continue where I'm kind of, I am kind of building my Bible of Counter-Strike, as it were, the way I see Counter-Strike being played and the way the meta shifts and the cycles of it and the relevance of the number of players you have and how you save a gun. These are all factors that I think are very key and yet they seem so simple but they're not because we're treating them in a very serious complicated manner so in terms of energy and all the rest of it i would just say as a final note stuff like having a good diet drinking lots of water getting enough sleep having an i think a key element actually is managing your free time so that you have free time and that you have time to relax and that you do kind of eat put your mind at ease so that then when you go at your work you're just going full speed and you're going fully at it and giving you everything so Deanold Droper says, if teams could substitute a player or even the entire team at halftime, do you think any teams would use it? No. Right. Here's the one thing, though. That's also, by the way, that's not actually that great a question, just because if you look at the way Counter-Strike works at the moment, it already takes quite a while in a match to warm up and fully feel in, in, within the flow of the game. Then you've got to consider when a game's going on, if you switch players in and I'm the enemy in-game leader, I'm going to abuse those players instantly because they're not going to have a sense for what the flow of the game is or, or, or what angles everyone's been peeking at. Even if they've been watching the game, it's not the same as feeling the resistance of the enemies in the server and how easy or how hard it is to go to a spot. So you wouldn't want to do it anyway. But a more interesting question, and one that I would like to see in the future, is as more money comes along, and as people can, in theory, afford to buy more players, I'd love it if there were teams where they had a player who was not good enough to be in the main team, but he was good enough because he's a specialist at a map. So a player who plays a certain spot on Cobblestone that your team's not that great on Cobblestone otherwise, it's like one of your worst maps, but he's very good at drop room. And so you put him in your map game just for Cobblestone and that evens some of those that up. I think that would be pretty cool to have a proper six-man lineup in that respect and just have that other guy play one to two maps and then as a result, even up the map pool and give people a different luck overall. That would be a cool way to use substitutes, I think. So Godzilla Hard Discson, almost no way that can be real, said, what was the beginning of 2017 the lowest point ever for Swedish Counter-Strike? No. I think now has to be... Let me think. What would we say for lowest ever? I think we should say that ESL Cologne was the lowest point ever for Swedish Counter-Strike because even though Nip made it there, they did it in kind of fluke fashion to the playoffs. Obviously, it didn't happen for Fnatic. Godsense non-existent as a team. Even Modioff in Heroics not having success. I think that has to be the worst period in town. Like, I realize Fnatic made the top eight of the major again, although they weren't good enough, quite frankly, the way they played in the playoffs to really do anything. But yeah, I think that has to be the lowest period ever because that's a period in time where Sweden has zero contender teams to be the best in the world. Sweden has like one top eight team at best, that's at best, and not even two teams in the top 10. Also, you look at individual players. Which Swedish player is a top five player in the world? There isn't one. Which Swedish player is a top 10 player in the world? You're already pushing it to say someone there. Like you could put JW, that wouldn't be terrible. Forrest, only that was too few a tournament. That was just ESL Cologne. Kind of running out of names, aren't we? So Olaf Meister is pretty good. Maybe he could be at the bottom of the top 10. Then again, his performance hasn't been that consistent recently. I feel as though there are massive issues here that you can't really resolve just by 
looking at them and saying, oh, they'll get better. So, yeah, I think this is the worst point ever for Swedish Counter-Strike. And part of it, though, I think they've got the wrong lineups. Like, I don't think they did a good job mixing it up. And their recruitment strategy is going to be very poor. When you look at the history of Swedish Counter-Strike, one element that defined it was the recruiting philosophy. And so for the first half of the 2000s, Sweden had the most majors, the most big championships go to their country. Now, part of that is because they had two players who won most of those championships called Heaton and Potty. And they famously were incredibly cutthroat at, at doing roster moves. If they had a big tournament or a couple of big tournaments that went badly and it's because someone's in a slump or someone isn't fitting their role, they'd cut that player because they'd say, hey, yes, he might be a good player. He might get back to it. And you know what? And some of the other teams, that player would go on to be very good. But they realized we can get someone right now who can do this role better or who's at a better level or who we can use in a different way. And so as a result, even if they would come third at a tournament, they'd bounce right back and they'd be able to get to the championship, you know, six months later, a few months later by making those cutthroat roster moves. Now, teams like... Fnatic more recently, NIP especially, haven't made the, those kind of moves. Godsent has been willing to be mediocre. So you look at where the three philosophies of these teams are, it makes no, it's no surprise really that Sweden doesn't have an elite level team, doesn't have a world championship team. They haven't made the best of the talent within their own scene. Jeff TM says, do you agree with the assertion that SK are at a higher level now than they were when they were dominant in 2016, but the overall level of CS is higher now? Right. On the face of, this, of the statement, yes. I think SK is at a higher level. Let me see. No, actually, I guess I don't. Because when he, it's a, it depends. Here's the problem, right? Does it, they were on a higher level in as much as I think they were actually more consistent in 2016 because FNX was like more of a team player than Phelps is. So as a result, I think that added a level of consistency and that's why they had the super deep map pool and they had the style that always worked and then they had stars that were set up within the system to always shine as well and everyone in the team did their job. So it made them very, very consistent and that allowed them to be pretty dominant overall and that also crucially, yes, I think that their level of CS was lower, but... Even though in a sense, like at the moment, that lineup's greater, I actually think that this current lineup is overall at a higher level and will go on to be a better lineup than the other SK, purely, even though the, and the level of CS is higher now. And that's mainly because I think their trio of star players is unbelievable. Like to have that sort of a trio, the only ones even comparable to that is kind of like Fnatic early 2016. Obviously that team didn't win a major famously and won some smaller tournaments. So I think it's absolutely insane how much talent they've got in this team, but then they've still got just enough team play elements to it. And then the tactical aspect, it's not, it can't be as in-depth as it was before because they don't have the player base for that. It's a different era, but they still have some good tactics, which they're effective with. And that's the key element to me. And it's based around the strength of the players. So it's kind of a loose style molded into a tactical approach. So I think it's kind of very special style in that respect. And I think this team can be greater whether they win the major or not. So in terms of the overall level of CS getting higher, I just want to clarify, by the way, I don't mean just because it's 2017 and that was 2016. I'm not one of these people who buys that bullshit that like every year all the players get better and the scene gets better and you have to like keep up as a result. No, I think it goes in cycles and it depends on, on recruitment philosophy. So since we had all those amazing roster moves after the E-League major, that's what made the scene super competitive now because all the top 10 stacked up their lineups and got super sick. Now then. Infinity, with a one at the end, says, is the Swiss system effective and gets the most deserving teams through to the next stages? For example, should Vega Squadron have even made the major or should it be in a team like Hellraiser or Liquid? Right? Here's the point. Here's the key point to understand. 
Like should and deserving are just such loaded terms. It's not that interesting to use them because they're just gonna cause people to have pointless arguments. So what I would say is this, is the Swiss system effective at getting the best teams through? No. In fact, it seems like one of the least effective systems for that that we've ever had because of the random reseeding. As I point out in my video, if you just do reseeding, that will fix a lot of this. Secondly, if you do best of threes, that will fix it even more. Even if you just do reseeding, the key element to understand is when he says there should, like Vegas Squadron probably shouldn't have made it, meanwhile Hellraisers or Team Liquid should have. Yeah, I agree. And I think if Team Liquid or Hellraisers had played Vegas Squadron in the last match, they would have beaten Vegas Squadron and made it, which is the problem. The question is, why did Vegas Squadron not play those teams in the Deciders match? Well, because they played Dignitas, I believe. Well, that's exactly the issue here, which is that because there wasn't reseeding, you didn't have, like out of those two teams there, it should have been someone like Hellraisers or Team Liquid, Team Liquid probably because they were at the last major, who should have had the seed that meant they would have played Vegas Squadron and therefore would have beaten them. Instead, you would have had like Hellraisers versus Flipside. And then if Flipside beats Hellraisers, fair play. Now that didn't happen, which is the problem. And that is one of the holes in the, in the cheese of the Swiss cheese, as it were. So I hope that is fixed just by implementing a different system of how we work the Swiss system. So blind FSB, with FSB being like a clan tag, says, which system works better? The LOL system, where there is one centralized league and all the few tournaments revolve around it, or the CSGO format, where you just play a bunch of tournaments? Again, works better for who? Like, personally, I mean, luckily you've given me the most extreme example, which is I, only, I think that the, the LOL system only works better for Riot Games, who are the ones who run the league and wanted it to be that way. I personally think it's worse for everyone else, for the best players, for, the, for even the lesser teams, for newer players trying to prove themselves, for organizations that aren't at the top yet, who want to become the top by battling through and going to some lands, and then getting a good team, and then getting a good player. I think it's worse for everyone. Top players don't earn as much prize money. You waste some of what would have been some of the prize money for the elite players on some of the lesser players that I don't really give a fuck about. So forgetting all that, you've only really asked me though about the league circuit, which is having a centralized league and all the tournaments revolve around that or having an open circuit. I think the open circuit is the best thing that has ever existed in esports. I love it in Dota 2, I love it in CSGO. I think these games shit on every other game. They destroy WCS in StarCraft, and they destroy LCS in LCK and all the rest of it in League of Legends. And I think it is by far the best approach that you could have. And I don't really see any positives going for the others that outweigh all the positives of having tournaments around the world and competition between different tournament organizers in a very deep circuit so that you get a team like SK can play like eight tournaments in three months if they want to, or you can be like Astralis and play like three tournaments in the same period of time. I think it's a really cool system. It means we get loads of great matches and we get to enjoy one of the best esports games while teams are in their prime. A lot of matches, not just one split until they have issues. So, yams in a can. How do you determine the strength of a team on a certain map? Okay, so first and foremost, obviously, you have to look at efficacy. You have to ask yourself how, how reasonable is it that they are good on the map? Like what factors tell you that they are good on it? So one of the obvious ones is, do they win on the map? Now, not just do they win overall, like do they have 70% win rate, do they win and then against who? If they're getting wins against other good teams on the map or they only lose to good teams on the map, that's a good indicator right there. Secondly, if they're getting wins on the map, compared to other maps that they have, there's another good sign. And thirdly, and probably the most important one, is when you watch them play the map, how much of their style suggests that they can read the map 
that they have executes that work, and then thirdly, that even when they lose the map, that the executes were fine, the tactical concepts were fine, that it's just players didn't hit shots and players misplayed aspects. If you have those elements there, that means that you can be a team. A good example right now would be Astralis on Mirage. So over the last three months, Astralis has like a one to two record on Mirage. But the teams they lost to on Mirage was Cloud9 in overtime and SK Gaming in a very narrow game. And SK Gaming, probably the best Mirage team in the world. Cloud9, an extremely good top five Mirage team in the world. And so, actually, that's a fantastic map for Astralis. They're one of the best teams. They might be top five team in the world on Mirage. But their record doesn't tell them that. But you look at how they play the map, how they make reads, where the star players play. I would also say, by the way, that's a key element. If you want to talk about a team's best map and an all-time great map, usually to be a dominant all-time great team, you've got to have one map, at least one map, but usually one map, that's your home map. And the reason it works for you almost every time is because you have like usually a minimum of three players where they're really suited to the positions they play. You can mix it up a bit. You've got to have at least three players. And that makes the backbone of how it works for you on that map. And you can get a a lot of consistency out of that because they play the map very very well now let's see right we'll do one more question here so a hero with a three says you always you always say you think the pistols are the most broken in the game right now what do you think of launder's suggestion of simply reducing the movement speed Yeah, I've, I've watched that video and I do think it is one solution. Like I do think a problem in CSGO especially is that not only do you already spam the pistols a bit, particularly the P250, the USP, I, not only do I think you spam it a bit too much, but I always felt like the models in CS look like they move too fast. And that was always an issue. So I'd rather, personally, nerf the movement. In fact, I might nerf movement altogether in CS. But I would improve it in terms of when jumping. I would allow more air acceleration when jumping. Or you can do like one or two bumps on the ground without losing too much speed. Because then you can add in some kind of movement skill like that and some dodging like that. But it's different from just peeking constantly on a corner like that, which I think just makes the game lame, especially because there's no wall bangs to punish someone like that. And so on pistons, especially, where it's people just constantly moving like this and just tapping to the side of each other's heads. And that is kind of crap overall. Uh, and the fact that you say it's so broken, etc. Mm, see, that's the problem. Because it's pretty broken at the moment. I'd rather just also fix the firing style. I'd rather make it so the most encouraged style is standing still for a second while you fire and then letting the crosshair come down. If you do that and then you fix some of the movement issues, I think that will make them perfectly balanced and make pistol rounds a lot more skilled, quite frankly. So that's the end of Ask Thor in episode 12. Submit questions for episode 13 on boomio.com. Can all this be through the finish? Yeah. 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 Yeah.